This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defiled the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, if you've been with us thus far in the study of the book of Jude, you'll remember the argument or the flow of the book goes something like this. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus and the full brother of James, wanted to write a letter about the subject of salvation. But an emergency arose in the church and he was forced to change directions and he had to write to the people to earnestly contend for the faith. The reason why is because certain ungodly people had crept in unnoticed crept into the church, and they began teaching an antinomian or an anti-law gospel, a gospel of licentiousness, which basically said continue to sin, that grace may abound. And they also were errant in their Christology. They were denying the only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so James, uh, Jude writes to the people, and he tells them to stand up and fight. He encourages the church members to get up and to contend for the faith that was once delivered for the faith, um, delivered for all. Don't just sit there and take it. And in order to do this, he reminds them of three Old Testament stories, stories that they once knew, but stories that they needed to be reminded of. Uh, the story of the children of Israel, uh, not the ones that made it into the promised land, but the ones that did not believe and refused to go in and take the land of promise because of fear. And as a result, they wandered 40 years in the wilderness and they died. They did not enter in because of unbelief. And the angels who did not keep their first estate, but rebelled against God and fell from heaven. And then our example for today, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities who were wiped off the mat by fire and sulfur from heaven because of their unbridled sexual sin. Now, before we get into the specifics of this text, verse 7, let me just step back and one more time answer the question, why would Jude choose these three examples for his audience under these circumstances? In other words, what was Jude hoping to accomplish by grouping these three stories together specifically? 
Well, I'm sure there's a lot more to it than this, but at the very core, these stories share at least five common threads. In the first place, in each, the subjects are showered with unusual privileges. Uh, Secondly, in each case, the sin that they commit is grievous and putrefying. Uh, Thirdly, in each case, their punishment was swift, decisive, and severe. And closely related, in the fourth place, in each case, the punishment is meted out by God himself apart from human agency. And fifth, please consider that in each case, the sin spread beyond its origination and influenced and infected others. In other words, in each case, it was malignant. The 10 spies came back and they influenced 2 million people. Lucifer influenced a third of the heavenly host to rebel against God. And in our story for today, Sodom and Gomorrah influenced the cities around them and they also influenced Lot's wife. Now, this is exactly what Jude is up against when he is fighting against the false teachers and the apostates who were in the church. Uh, There was not... Uh, a situation where they were on an island with no communication. They were in the church and there was the cancer of their false doctrine and their false practices which were spreading. So with that in mind, Jude cites these three examples in order to demonstrate that God knows how to defend his church. I want you to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, which says that if anyone destroys God's temple, this is speaking of the church, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you and the you there is plural and you are that temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Well, today we're going to be looking at the example of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And from this verse, I want us to briefly consider the privileges that they shunned, the perversity of their sin, the punishment that they suffer and the pardon that we must seek. But first, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I want to ask you, Lord, that you would please be with me this morning as I preach. And Lord, I pray that you would, on this day, which is filled with so many distractions, cause us, Lord, for this brief moment to concentrate upon your word and to learn what it is that you would have for us. Lord, I pray that we, as Jude has instructed us, would look at Sodom and Gomorrah and realize, Lord, that you mean business and that you are a holy God and that you are a God of wrath. But Lord, I pray also in this text that we would see that you are a God of infinite mercy. And Lord, there is an escape from the sin which these people of Sodom committed. And so, Lord, as this gospel is presented this day, Please, Lord, have your will and use it, Lord, to regenerate your people and to encourage your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The privileges that they shunned. What did Sodom and Gomorrah have going for them? Well, first of all, it was a very rich, affluent community with a very rich economy. How do we know that? Well, remember when Abraham and Lot got a little bit crowded... And Abraham said, let's not fight, Lot, let's part ways, and you can have dibs on whichever way you want to go. Notice what happened when Lot, in Genesis 13:10 lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley, that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. He looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the valley, and he said, this looks like the garden of Eden. That's where I want to go. And based upon that observation, Lot takes up residency there. 
and their affluence did not bring about any godliness. In fact, one of the sins that Sodom was uh, um, cited for in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 49, is that they were rich and they did not help the poor. Listen to Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and needy. Listen to the words of William Jenkin, who wrote in the year 1653. He writes, Sodom was watered with the Jordan and fatted with prosperity. It was a nursery for impiety. How deceitful an argument of God's love is worldly abundance. In other words, you cannot look at the abundance that God gives someone and say that that is an argument for his love. He goes on to say, I have never heard nor read that prosperity occasioned the conversion of one soul. It is rare to see religion flourish in a rich soil. Sodom was rich, but they were not holy. They also had the privilege of a military deliverance. You remember the story of Genesis chapter 14 when we read of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the three cities that surrounded them when they were defeated and they were put to flight and even Lot himself and his family were captured. And in Genesis 14, 14, Abraham catches word of this. He takes 318 of his men and he goes and he delivers Lot and he delivers the king of Sodom. You see, if it weren't for Abraham, the people of Sodom would have been slaves but they were delivered but not thankful but the greatest privilege that they shunned is that they had a preacher of righteousness abraham's nephew lot as a resident evangelist who preached the truth in their lives every day now consider this for just a moment do you realize how few cities in the ancient near east had any gospel witness whatsoever Few, way less than 1%. But Sodom had a preacher of righteousness who was a resident there. Turn back to the book of Second Peter, chapter 2. Look in verses 6 through 9. This was our congregational scripture reading this morning. And it said, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, and now Lot is described, who was Lot, this man who lived in Sodom, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Do you see what's happening here? Verse 9, and the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see, this man Lot would walk down the street and he would see two men standing on the street corner kissing or they would be holding hands or they would see their flamboyant lifestyle and he didn't just look at it and be grieved and walk home. But no, he would say something. He was salt. He was light. He didn't look the other way. Lot may not have been the best husband or father, but he certainly knew his culture. He said to the angels who appeared in Sodom the night before it was destroyed, you men cannot sleep in the city square. Why did he say that? He said that because he knew his culture and he was hospitable and he invited them into his home. 
And he tried to convince his wife and he tried to convince his sons-in-law to flee from Sodom and to not look back. He was a light in a dark place. And so what do we have in Sodom? We have a place that was blessed with wealth. They were blessed with military protection. They were blessed with good doctrine and sound preaching. Privileges which translated into wickedness. Does that sound familiar? My friends, what I have just described to you is the United States of America in the year 2011. But let's move on to our second point, the perversity of their sin. Back to Jude, verse 7. Let me read it again. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. In other words, homosexuality. This might be the first Christmas message you've ever heard on homosexuality. Let me make a few general statements about homosexuality and then some specifics as it relates to the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. First of all, let me state from the word of God unequivocally that homosexuality is a sin and that it is wrong and that no one is born that way and that it is against nature and it is against the law of God and it is classified as an abomination. Any sin outside of marriage is sinful and homosexuality fits that category. doesn't matter if you're married to the person or not. It is an abomination. And if one practices it and is unrepentant, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if this is your practice, it doesn't matter what your profession is, you are not a Christian. So when political candidates address the subject of same-sex marriage, those who condone it are promoting an abomination. It's not an alternative lifestyle. It is wrong. But, lest that you think I am committing a hate crime on Christmas morning, I need to say this. As Christians, as North Shore Baptist Church, we must do everything that we can to be kind and loving and compassionate to these people. And let me tell you why. Because just like you and me, they are image bearers. They are made in the image of God. And because just like you and me, they can be forgiven and they can be redeemed. And just like you and me, if it were not for the grace of God, the restraining grace of God, you would be enslaved to that sin and so would I or in something worse. We are not better people than they are. And we need to be kind to them because they are not gay. The word gay is a word which they have pirated, which I do not like to use in describing them. Gay is a biblical word. It means happy or joyful. Like the Flintstones, we will have a gay old time. No, they are not. They are not gay. They are slaves of their sin and they are bondage and they need deliverance. And so when the Christian community looks at them and mocks them or they are cruel to them or they use 
their lifestyle as a joke or something to jest or if in any way they are condemnatory or, God forbid, if we think we are in any way better than they are. And that is a grievous sin as well. Please don't get me wrong. Never for a moment should we ever leave them with the impression that we approve of their sin. And at the same time, we should never hate them or be cruel to them, but we should love them and we should let them know that we love them. Now, loving them does not mean that we accept them as they are and we say, you're okay, I'm okay. Any more than you would accept a man that was on fire or a man that was bleeding or a man that was drowning without trying to help them. Loving them means giving them a fair warning that unless they repent, they will be damned. Loving them means pointing them to Christ who forgives sinners and letting them know that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more and letting them know that in 1 Corinthians six eleven, such were some of you, but the justifying work of the Lord and the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus Christ can erase that. But loving them also means saying it in a way which is loving and being kind in the process and speaking to them respectfully and speaking to them in dignity. When we think about the subject, we always talk about coming out, coming out of the closet. Well, I want to tell you something, sinners, homosexuals and those who are straight, whatever that means. By nature, we are all in a closet. That's what sin does to you. When God walked through the garden in the cool of the day looking for Adam, and he was naked hiding behind a bush, and God called out to him and said, Adam, where are you? You know that from that day to this, we have been hiding from God. We have been in the closet with our sin. It might not be homosexuality, but it's something else. And sin, by nature, puts us in the closet. What causes people to come out of the closet is when a culture becomes emboldened, such as the United States of America. For example, the media, in large part, is heavily influenced and driven by the homosexual agenda. Every character or every television program that is on TV currently has a homosexual character. Even Disney cartoons have flamboyant, effeminate characters. So the culture has become emboldened so that people can come out of the closet and say, here I am. But still there are those who do not wish to be public with their sin. I'm talking to you this morning. Maybe you have attended church for years. Maybe you know the truth of the gospel better than I do. And yet you struggle in your heart with the sin of homosexuality. You struggle and you struggle alone and you struggle with no one to help you. Especially you struggle with no one to help you from the church. Because every time you hear Christians bringing up this subject, it's in the form of a joke or it is condemnatory. And every time that happens, you cringe and you weep 
And every time you fall, you say to yourself, I have nowhere to go. And you are dying on the inside and you are too ashamed to seek help. And you feel certain that if anyone ever knows the truth, well, then that will destroy you. Well, you feel that way for two reasons. Number one, you feel that way because you have seen so little compassion from the Christian community. You know that if you ever said anything, you would be lynched. And the second reason why you don't want to say anything to anyone is because you have believed the lies of Satan and you are trapped and you are alone. I want to say to North Shore Baptist Church this morning, we need to find a way to balance the truth of Scripture and on the one hand to boldly hate this sin and stand up against it. In the voting booth, please do not call yourself a Christian if you vote for a candidate or for a legislation which advocates same-sex marriage. It is an abomination. So we have a voice in the voting booth. And we need to find a way to plant our feet and to say that this is wrong. In the media that we indulge in and what we expose our children to, And even what we say with our voices, we must stand up as Lot did and say, this is wrong. But yet at the same time, we need to find a way to do it, which is radically compassionate and love those who are in it through the gospel. Now, as I look out among you, I have no one in mind. If I have described you today... You need to know that God forgives repentant sinners. And you need to know that you need to seek help, not from the lies of a liberal society who will justify your actions, but from a genuinely compassionate Christian who will point you to a genuinely compassionate Savior. Specifically, concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, you want to talk about being emboldened? in pursuit of their sin. When Lot tells the angels that they cannot spend the night in the town square or they surely would be bait for gang rape, Lot knew his culture and he was absolutely right. And it was the young men as well as the old men that came to Lot's home and tried to break down the door and to rape the angels. They didn't know that they were angels. They thought they were just men. Even though these angels looked like men because angels take on a male appearance, their sin was so intense they knew these men had to be in some way divine beings because all of the people from the oldest to the youngest were struck with blindness. But even after they were struck with blindness, they were groping for the door to try to get at them. That's how emboldened they were in their sin. And even today, the name Sodom is a byword. It's vilified in Scripture. It is the namesake for homosexual sin. And the names of Sodom and Gomorrah appear throughout the Scriptures in both Testaments, figuratively and literally, as examples of excessive sexual sinfulness. How wicked were they? My goodness. Ten. God could not find ten righteous people 
When Abraham prayed for deliverance, and if there had been even ten righteous people, God would not have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we get to the last book of the Bible, Apostate Jerusalem, in Revelation 11.8, in the first century, is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. You see, I want to tell you today that the United States of America did not invent sexual perversion. And I'm not just speaking here about homosexuality. I'm speaking out any kind of sexual sin outside of marriage. Uh, it has been around since the book of Genesis. But I want to tell you that just as in my first point, the more I study, the more I am convinced that we as a society are increasingly becoming more and more like Sodom. Affluence, military protection, the word of God which does not penetrate the hearts of people, and an excessive expression of sexual perversity. We're living in Sodom. But let's move on to point number three. The punishment they suffer. Jude tells us in verse 7, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, on the one hand, it is not an eternal fire in that it is still burning in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities surrounding them today. God rained fire and sulfur upon them and consumed them, but eventually that fire went out. The fire was not an eternal fire in Jude 7 in that it was continuing to consume on earth those cities. No, it is an eternal fire in the hell of eternal conscious punishment. So what is hell like? How much of the literature in Scripture is literal? How much is figurative? I have to tell you this morning, I'm not sure. Uh, For example, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. I have to be honest with you. I don't know what that literally looks like. I cannot envision it. I'm not saying that it's not literal. I'm just saying that the imagery makes for an interesting discussion. But I will tell you this. I am not curious enough to go there to find out. And whether the actual descriptions are intended by biblical authors to be literal or figurative, you don't want to go there either. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Merry Christmas. And hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. And if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but set them up as an example, if you are not saved, he will send you there as well. Because as Jude points out in all three examples, the children of Israel and the angels which fell and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as examples. God knows how single-handedly to protect his truth and to defend his honor and to punish the wicked. And if you are among the unbelieving or among the rebellious or among the sexually immoral, even if you're straight... He will punish you with eternal fire. Literal or figurative, are you curious enough to go there? Which brings us to our last point this morning. 
And that is the pardon we must seek. God rescued Lot, temporarily rescued his wife and rescued his two daughters by sending angels who literally grabbed them by the wrist and drug them out of town and said, run and don't look back. Wife's lot looked back. She turned into a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife. But here's the question. As they left, where were they to go? We'll turn back to the book of Genesis chapter 19. Here's the deal that Lot worked out before he left. Remember, the cities of the plain had, they were five in number. Lot's leaving and he needs somewhere to go. I'll pick up the reading in verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life, and do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city, speaking of the city that he wants to go to, is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Verse 21. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. For I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Zoar. All five cities are together in the plain. All five cities are influencing one another. And Sodom and Gomorrah have the main influence upon these three other little cities. And Zoar is one of them. Zoar was a place, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, that was given to sin. It wasn't a righteous little place. Hamlet. It wasn't Bedford Falls. It was in the neighborhood of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is merciful and he provided a place for them to flee. Why? Why did God give them a place to go? You know, I've read this a million times and I never saw it until this week. Look in Genesis 19, 29. So it was that. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Why did God save Lot, according to this verse? Because of Abraham. And you say, so what? What is it about Abraham that would cause God to save or rescue Lot? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12. When God came to a man in Ur of the Chaldees who was an idol worshiper, who was about 75 years old, who had absolutely nothing to offer God and who had no children, and God comes to him and says, I am selecting you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. 
And I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, through you, Abraham, will come Isaac. And from Isaac will come Jacob, and from Jacob will come Judah. And from the tribe of Judah will come King David. And from King David will come King David's greater son, who is Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham himself wasn't Lot's hiding place from sin and punishment. And Zoar itself was nothing but a wicked little village. It wasn't Lot's hiding place. The reason why God spared Lot is because of Christ. Abraham saw Christ's day and was glad. Merry Christmas. And God himself said to Abraham that he would provide the sacrifice. So I want to say to you today, whether you are a homosexual or a child molester or a murderer or a rapist or a terrorist or you're just a garden variety sinner who's done a little shoplifting, you do a little bit of pornography and you do a little bit of cheating on your taxes and every once in a while you tell what society calls is a white lie. It doesn't matter. Whatever kind of a sinner you are, the wrath of God has you in its crosshairs. And all he needs to do is just let go of the arrow and you are finished. And he can pull the trigger at any moment. And you've got to get out of Sodom. And you've got to get out fast. And you need to run, Forrest, run. And don't look back. Your Zoar, your city in the valley, is not a support group. It is not a New Year's resolution. It is not turning over a new leaf. It is not even the church. It is not Christians. You have one spot to run from which you can escape wrath, and it is Mount Calvary. The wrath will not hit you there because the wrath already hit there 2,000 years ago. And just as God rained fire and sulfur down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, that was nothing. That was God just clearing his throat compared to what happened on Mount Calvary when Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was funneled upon the person of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And he did the work. It is finished. And so you need to run there. You need to run there because it's safe. You need to run there because the place where you are is dangerous. You need to run there because that's the place where you can find forgiveness. You need to run there because that's where you will find the power to change. You're not going to find the power to change in some support group. You're going to find it through the blood and through the cross. You need to run there because that is where your guilt and your tears will be removed. And that is where you will be rescued and saved. And that is where eternal hell fire will never touch you. And that's where you will find the loving arms of a Savior. A Savior who loved you enough to become and to be born in Bethlehem and to live as a human and to live perfectly and to die for you. Run to Jesus Christ. That is the place, my friends no matter what kind of a sinner you are, that you will be kept safe. So as I close today, I would ask please that you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
And you say, can a change really come? Can a change really come? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul spells out a list. The worst, the most abominable sins. These were sins which these people in Corinth actually committed. What were their sins? As you start to read in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness, what would we do if the Bible just ended with that verse? I'd be in hell. I'd bust hell wide open. My fingerprints are all over this. I have no I have no defense whatsoever. Neither do you. Oh, thank God that Paul didn't put down his quill. Thank God that the Holy Spirit inspired him to keep writing. And look at what he wrote. And such were. W-E-R-E. Were. You're not that way anymore. Such were some of you. But what happened? But you were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But you were sanctified. That is, you were set apart. You were justified. That is, you were declared righteous by God. And that can never change. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So, residents of Sodom, run, run while it's Christmas Day, run while there's still time, run while the wrath of God has not yet come upon you, because one day, my friends, it will, but there is still hope today. All my friends, run to Christ. Father in heaven, may we today as we think about this Lord make application Lord for those in this congregation who have used the sin of homosexuality as a springboard for jesting and joking and for hatred and for condemnation and mockery Lord may they repent this day and Lord may you break their hearts and Lord may you show them that if it wasn't for your grace that they would be there as well And Father, may you give each of us compassionate hearts for all sinners. But Lord, would you teach us specifically how it is that we who have not done a good job, and we confess that, we who have not done a good job in ministering to this portion of society, Lord, that we would have a genuine love in our hearts for them and that you would give us wisdom in knowing how to speak to them, on the one hand upholding the truth, Lord, and on the other hand, being kind. And Lord, I would ask for any person this day that is in the bondage of sin, whatever that sin may be, oh Lord, would you please this day give them grace to repent and cause them, Lord, to flee to the only place which is safe, and that is 
Mount Calvary. Oh Lord, this day, may it not be a day of presents and trees as much as it is a day of just coming to the cross and finding forgiveness in your Son. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org. 